Good morning. So good to see all of you this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. We are putting the finishing touches on a series that has been examining spiritual growth. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about systems versus goals, talked about identity versus outcomes, relationship versus rules, and milk versus meat. If you missed any of those lessons, you can go to our website, olcoc.com, and you can view them there. You can also subscribe to the Oldham Lane podcast, and that way when a new sermon comes out, you can listen to it on your drive to work or when you're working out, or if you're someone who has trouble sleeping, you can turn on that podcast, and I guarantee you, you will get the best sleep of your life. I want to finish up our series called Upgrade this morning by looking at this, trials. So when we're talking about trials, we're talking about how these difficult times in our lives are no respecter of persons, right? Trials is an equal opportunity employer. It, uh, it doesn't discriminate. There are three people, three types of people in this world. Those who have been through a trial, those who are currently going through a trial, or those who will face a trial. If you live long enough, you will fall into one of those three categories. You will face a trial. You might even face more than one trial, but it's a guarantee that you will go through a trial. So the question is not, will I face a trial? That has already been answered with a definitive yes. So the better question is, when a trial comes, how do I handle it? A man boarded a plane bound for Quito, Ecuador. And unfortunately, he never reached his destination. His plane crashed into the side of a mountain, killing everyone on board. Before he left, he wanted to write his mother a letter, and he found some stationery. And on top of the stationery, in big, bold letters, was just one word. Why? And so he scribbled his note to his mother, and after she got the disheartening news that her son had passed away, she received that letter. And when she opened it up, the first thing she saw was that big, bold word at the top of the page. Why? It's a question we all ask, and it's not a bad question. It's a valid question. David asked why. Jesus asked why. It's okay to ask the question why, but I think there's a better question. I think there's a, a better question to be asking, and that is how. How do I get through this trial? Or better still, how can I use this trial to help me to grow? How many of you are stirring in your seat right now? About ready to blow a gasket. Because you saw that word up on the screen, didn't you? I said trials, and what's on the screen is trails. Some of you couldn't wait to come up to me after the sermon and say, hey, you spelled it wrong. Actually, I didn't. That's exactly what I intended to put up there. Because as we finish up this series, I want us to look at how trials can actually serve as a trail to bring us closer to God. You ever play hide-and-seek with your kids when they were little? I did. I got to tell you, my kids were horrible at it. I mean, they would hide under the bed with their legs sticking out. They'd get under the covers. You see this big lump in the bed. Or they'd hide behind the curtains, which were see-through, by the way. And if it took me more than two minutes to find them, they would give away their location by yelling out, Dad, I'm over here. Or they'd start laughing or something. I, however, was undefeated. I, I never lost at hide-and-seek. In fact, I'm pretty sure I could have holed up for a week somewhere and they never would have found me. But what I loved about playing hide-and-seek with my kids is when they got desperate, when they couldn't find me, and they got worried. 
And they'd almost start to cry. Dad, where are you? I love that. You know why? Because I love to be wanted by my children. I wanted them to want me, to love me so much that they wanted to find me. That's, that's God, folks. God loves you and he wants you to be close to him. He wants you to find him, but he's not playing some divine game of hide and seek. Even though in the midst of trials, we often, you know, close our eyes and, and run and hide. God is not hiding from us. He wants us to draw near. He wants us to be close. I, I've got to tell you, I've got an addiction to crime shows. I, I watch about any crime documentary that's out there. Unsolved mysteries, any, anything like that. I like those type of shows. And I was watching a documentary just the other night. It's a terrible story. It's called Children of the Snow. And it's about the true story back in the 70s, how four children were abducted and killed in the suburbs of Detroit. And they're trying to solve this mystery that's gone on for so many years. And the documentary is uncovering some things that are unsettling, maybe some cover-ups and things of that nature. But there was one gentleman who was a father of one of the victims. And this has been, you know, back in the 70s, so however many years that's been, and they're interviewing him. And on camera, he says, I haven't been to church in 40 years. And the interviewer says, why? And he said, because I struck a deal with God, and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And they asked him, well, what was the deal? And he said, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And, you know, in some ways, I guess I can kind of understand. But it's just human nature. That when we go through a trial, people tend to pull away from God in the church when they need those two the most. And I think you know that that's a really bad approach. God wants to use our mess to draw us closer to Him. All trials have the same goal, to grow you. That's it. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you cannot grow spiritually without going through a trial. James says as much, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, it's one, it's one thing to sit in our comfortable pew and agree with this verse, say amen. It's something quite different to actually have to live it out, to be put to the test. But if you want to grow, you have to take the test. I don't like tests, written or otherwise, but if you want to pass in grade, you not only have to take the test, you have to do well on the test. So the question is how? How do I pass the test? Well, isn't it interesting that James starts with joy? Consider it all joy. Surely James is joking here, right? Either that or he's delusional. Actually, it's neither one. James isn't saying that trials are fun. He wasn't saying, hey, you're going to go through a trial, just enjoy it while you can. There's nothing good about a trial, at least on the front end, right? James is not saying be happy when you go through something, because happiness is a cheap, shallow emotion. Happiness is, is connected to external circumstances and conditions. It's a very shallow, cheap emotion. But James is talking about joy. And joy is something far deeper and far greater. Joy is about being carried away to where it's no longer about yourself. Joy is something that comes from the source, and the source, of course, being God. There is nothing enjoyable about trials, but James is, isn't trying to, to pull the wool over our eyes. He isn't trying to pull the old Jedi mind trick on us. 
and try to get us to believe that somehow trials are good, that somehow cancer or Alzheimer's is a blessing in disguise. There is joy, however, in knowing. There's joy in knowing, and that's the key. How can we experience joy in the midst of trials? Well, listen to what James says. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our first child, we were excited and scared to death. And so we, we did our best to prepare as we waited what seemed like an eternity for nine months. And then on November the 10th, 1996, Keely Shea McCurley made her entrance into the world St. Bernard's Hospital in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And as parents, we were a bundle of nerves that finally got to hold our bundle of joy. It's amazing how you can love something so much, even though you've never seen her before. Even though I'd never seen her except on, you know, an ultrasound, when she was laid in my arms, it's the best feeling in the world. Nothing like it. But here's the deal. My wife suffered to have that child. It was immense pain. It bothered me. And even to the point where when she was going through it, I was thinking, is this worth it? I questioned it for a second. Because I'd never seen her hurt like that. I'd never seen her in such a state. And all I could do was just hold her hand and tell her, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. But you know, at not one point during the birth of Keely did my wife ever say, Okay, stop, I'm done. I can't do it. Never once during the whole process did she say, wait, 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 I, I, I can't go through with it. I can't do it. I'm done, I'm out. She kept pushing. And do you know why? Because she knew. She knew something. She knew that through the excruciating pain, something great was going to come out of it. In fact, we did it two more times. We had two more kids, knowing the excruciating pain that she would go through. She had two more times because she knew something. And what she knew is that something great was waiting on the other side. How do I count it all joy? By knowing. Knowing that something good will be produced. Perspective means everything when it comes to this. Bitterness doesn't count it all joy, folks. Bitterness only looks at the trial, which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to concentrate on the trial and on the pain, but God wants us to focus on the result. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It's the signature verse for graduates, right? You see it on all the graduation cards. By the way, this verse has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the exiles in Babylon. In fact, your Bible version may have a heading atop of it that says, Message to the Exiles. That's not you. We're going to talk about this verse more in depth on our Sunday night series when we looked at some of the most misused and abused pieces of Scripture. But here's a quick context. Israel is in time out. They are embarking on a one-way trip into slavery. Jeremiah arrives on the scene and begins delivering a message of doom and gloom to a people who had very little patience for what the prophet had to say. And because of his message, Jeremiah was a hated man. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was humiliated. He was put in stocks. 
The message that he delivered was the source of his reproach. It doomed him to being the crazy old preacher who didn't know what he was talking about. And so you have a hopeless prophet speaking to a hopeless people immersed in a hopeless situation. Seemingly. Seemingly hopeless. Because notice it again. For I know. There's that word again. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. God had a plan. God knew something. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of the people's world falling apart around them, something better was on the horizon. And that's what hope is, isn't it? Hope is a vision for a better tomorrow. Hope is something better on the horizon. You can go to John chapter 14, verse 1 and following. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also may be. The setting of these words goes all the way back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 verse 4 all the way to John chapter 17 is an after dinner conversation. Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples. The cross is looming in the foreground. Jesus is about to be crucified. And as he and his closest friends are talking, Jesus gives them some final instructions. And this is a conversation that we get to listen in on. And it's a conversation that speaks to us. Jesus' words are not words of sternness. They're words of comfort. He's saying, do not let your heart be troubled. They were confused. Their head was spinning They didn't know what was going on. And Jesus says, look, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not forsaking you. I'll be back. And in the meantime, I will leave the comforter with you to guide you in all things. But we feel abandoned at times, don't we? We get confused with all the, the trials that are going on. David felt abandoned by God. Listen to his words. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he looked after me. Have you noticed how many times in the Psalms David starts off with why and ends up with, I'm just going to trust you? You see it over and over again. David's message is, why God? Why have you allowed me to go through this? Why don't you step in? Why don't you do something? Rescue me, oh God. And then at the end, I'm going to trust in you. I know you're faithful. Because David had hope. God hadn't abandoned David. Jesus hadn't abandoned his disciples. He hasn't abandoned you. It's easy to feel like the omnipresent God is playing some divine game of hide and seek. We might even feel like he is unconcerned about our trials, but nothing could be further from the truth. God has not abandoned you. He is growing you. You see, trials are redemptive. And James says as much. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's the goal of every trial? Well, James says, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. 
Understand the word perfect here doesn't mean complete and total sinless perfection. Perfect here is a growth word. It's referring to a maturation process. But in order to get there, you have to pass the test. You can't get halfway through the test and walk away. You can't pass a test that you don't complete. You can't be a doctor if you don't complete the MCAT. You can't be a lawyer if you don't pass the bar. Not only do you have to take the test, you have to do well enough on the test. And the same is true with us in life. You got to take the test. You have to go through the test. Not only do you have to go through it, you have to, you have to pass the test. And if we want to be perfect and complete, then we have to endure. We have to finish. The word that Jesus, uh, James, I should say, uses for trial here in the Greek is parosmos. And it refers to testing. More specifically, it is a trial or testing directed toward an end. In other words, there's a goal involved here. The idea associated with this word is strengthening or purifying or refining. So what's the end? What's the ultimate goal? Not just of the trial, what's the ultimate goal? And we've talked about it in this series. We've used the signature passage from Galatians chapter 2 where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the goal. To be more like Jesus. And you remember Paul in Philippians 3 talked about how he wanted to be so much like Jesus that he was willing to engage in the fellowship of his sufferings. Whatever it took. So, if I want to get to heaven, and if I want to be like Jesus now while I'm here, then I'm going to have to go through some stuff probably. If, I, if this is a refining or a testing, then... In order to get me there, I'm going to have to go through some things that I may not approve of, things I'd rather not deal with. But if it helps me to be like Jesus, if it helps me to reach the goal, then I'm all in. Now, I, I don't pray for trials. I don't pray that God let me go through something difficult and heartbreaking. But I accept it to say, this is part of the process then I'm going to use it and I'm going to redeem it, as James said. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. We looked at it last week when we talked about growth. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 8, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We went through that whole contextual study last week of talking about Melchizedek and how the Hebrew writer was trying to teach past the elementary teachings. He was trying to dig a little deeper with the Hebrew Christians, but they weren't ready for it because they were still stuck in perpetual infancy. You remember all that? I think what the Hebrew writer is also getting at here is that our point of reference is the cross. It's the submission, the suffering, and the sacrifice of our Savior. And trials are meant to make us like Him. There's no such thing as a purposeless trial. They are all meant to conform us to the image of Christ. So if we know that trials are inevitable, that we cannot avoid them, then our only real option is to redeem them. To use them. Use your mess to draw closer to God. Use your mess to be more like Jesus. Treasure your trials as opportunities to grow up. And I think that's what James is getting at. It wasn't that long ago that I was walking through Target and I got a 
a text from a good friend of mine. Many of you know who Steve Higginbotham is. He's been here to preach. Steve is in Carnes, uh, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville, preaching there. Wonderful man of God, a good friend of mine. I'm walking through Target, and I get a message from Steve that says, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. He said, I've been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. It's all over my body. The prognosis is not good. That took me by surprise. I just talked to Steve a few days ago before that. And so I call him up, and as we're talking, he talked like someone who wanted to redeem his trial. He said, Chris, this is, this is the diagnosis, and I'm going to make the most of it. I had him on the podcast to talk about that, and he said, you know, if, if this is going to lead to my death, then I'm going to die well. That was his words. He said, I'm going to use cancer as a ministry, and I'm going to show people how to live through the trial. Even if that trial ends in death, I'm going to die well. And I've talked to some of you who have said similar things. We are not a congregation that has been exempt from trials over the last few years, have we? We went through a spurt not long ago where I had about a funeral or two a week. Many of you have faced the loneliness after losing a loved one. Many of you have faced a difficult diagnosis. Many of you have dealt with other tragedy in your life your marriage, with your family. And many of you have said to me, Chris, I don't understand it. I ask why, but at the end of the day, I have hope. I have hope that something better is on the horizon. That's why we don't see death as the worst possible scenario. Because death has no victory over us, right? It can claim no victory. I hear sometimes at funerals, well, you know, death is a good thing because, you know, no, death's not a good thing. It was never a part of the process. It was never part of the plan. But with sin, with the fall of man, it came into the picture. Death is not a good thing. Death is the enemy. That is reiterated over and over again in Scripture. However, the enemy is defeated. Death has no power over us. We rise victorious. We have hope on the horizon. That no matter what happens, even if death is the final result, which it will be for all of us at some point, we overcome. We are more than conquerors. So, while some ask, why me? And I don't think that's a bad question. Others ask, why not me? Why not me? If this is going to be my story, then I can write an ending that is doom and gloom or I can write an ending that is inspirational. I didn't get to choose the trial, but I can choose how I tackle it. And I get to write the ending. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think these two verses sum it all up for us beautifully. Friday was not a good day. It was not a good day. It was not a day of joy. Jesus is arrested. 
He is tried in a kangaroo court. He is flogged. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is humiliated. A crown of thorns is pressed down on his head. A purple robe is put on him, feigning respect for him. They spit in his face. They give him a cross to carry all the way up the hill, and he is nailed to that cross. He is crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb. Friday wasn't a good day. But Sunday is coming. And Sunday was the best day, right? Sunday, the day dawns, the earth begins to shake, but it's more than the ground that's shaking. The angel comes down and removes the stone so that people can see he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. The soldiers in charge of guarding the tomb fall down like dead men. It's Sunday and the sacrificial lamb on Friday is the line of Judah on Sunday. Friday was a bad day, Sunday is the best day. He is risen, he is not here. Just as he said, Friday wasn't joyful. There was no reason to rejoice on Friday. But joy was set before our Savior. So he endured the cross. He despised the shame. Because he knew that Friday wasn't the end of the story. There was triumph. There was triumph in the trial. Sometimes I'll be driving down the road listening to the radio And all of a sudden, there's an interruption, and it's an ominous voice that comes on and says something like, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And that goes through this long narrative. And then there's this loud wailing or siren. It's really annoying. And at the end of it, the ominous voice comes back on again and says, this has been a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. What's the purpose of that? Well, to prepare us in case there ever was a real emergency. It's why you do fire drills at school as a test so that you're prepared. Same is true in our Christian lives. There are tests. There are trials. And they are meant to prepare us because, folks, heaven is won or lost right here, right now. This is where we prepare. And whatever it takes to prepare me, I know there's something better out there. So whatever it takes, I redeem it and I use it. So I want want to leave you with a question this morning. What will you do with your trial? Will you waste it or will you use it? Don't allow it to stunt your growth. As hard and as difficult as it may be, let your trial be a trail to a deeper relationship with God. Pray with me. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this church, for your church. We thank you for watching over us constantly, taking care of us, sustaining us. And God, we know that you have our best interest at heart. And God, may we, may we use whatever circumstances come our way to glorify you. May we give people around us a front row seat to your faithfulness and your grace. May we show others what it means to be a disciple of yours, even when it's tough. God, may we prepare properly by redeeming the trials and, and passing the test. We love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. How can we help you this morning? 
Maybe you're dealing with difficulty in your life and you need the prayers of this church family. Certainly, we want to pray with you. We want to help you in any way we can. If you'd like to study with someone, if you'd like to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and certainly we'd like to do that as well. Maybe you're thinking about baptism and you're ready to put on Christ, begin a daily walk with Him, then certainly we want to take care of that as well. Clinton is going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.